You are listening to the Holmes Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. To learn more about Holmes Avenue or how you can join the mission, visit us online at holmesavenue.com. Amen, amen. You guys may be seated. Well, my name is Walter. Thank you for joining us today. I'm grateful that you're here to worship with us. We're going to continue our sermon series today, looking into the book of Acts at Paul's second missionary. We're in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15, if you want to open your Bible. Words will be on the screen as well. We're going to be looking at what I've titled the upside-down kingdom as we study this passage. Now, as we look at this, I got a question for you. Have you guys ever seen the musical Hamilton? I've got a few. Oh, yeah, yeah. A few people have raised their hands. Um, It's a good thing that Kelly is sitting right here because she loves Hamilton. It's probably her favorite thing to listen to. She listens to on repeat. I mean, she's got all the songs memorized. So if you need a performance, just talk to her. She will do it for you. If you're not familiar with what Hamilton is, this is a musical that's based on the life of Alexander Hamilton. Uh, It's surprisingly rather accurate historically, talking through some of his experiences, his life. And Hamilton, he particularly comes to some degree of prominence during the American Revolution. During the time, he is one of uh, the soldiers working directly with George Washington, then General Washington. And one event in particular that kind of catapults his name to fame, so to speak, during this time is the Siege of Yorktown. It's this battle that here he leads a group of soldiers with their guns, without their guns loaded, to assault a British fortification. It's a very risky maneuver under the middle of the night in the dark. And he says, I'm going to take it. We're going to do this. We're going to make sure that we win this. This moment of him capturing some British fortifications is actually one of the key moments in the battle that turns the tide for the American forces in the battle and leads to a victory for them during this. Now, what does this have to do with a musical, right? Well, the event is captured during the musical with the song titled Yorktown. Kelly will sing it for you later if you want. But this song, there's a refrain in there that captures the spirit of the American Revolution, that captures the spirit of what Hamilton and some of his fellow soldiers fought for. You said there's a refrain in this song that says, till the world turns upside down. Till the world turns upside down. You see, their goal during the revolution is ultimately to win freedom and turn the world upside down. The American forces are trying to work through war and through politics to win freedom for our nation. They're fighting in this particular war so that they have earned the right to dictate their own path and course. They conclude the American revolution. Indeed, the world is turned upside down. It will never be the same as we think of history. Now, I find that as we consider that refrain and that story from the American Revolution, that there are some echoes here of the story that we find, this redemption story in Jesus. After all, didn't Jesus come to bring freedom to his people? Didn't he win this war, not through war and politics, but through love and sacrifice? You see, Jesus came into the world and he turned everything upside down. Indeed, the world has never been the same since then because Jesus has fundamentally changed the course of human history. You see, Jesus turned his world, his kingdom, upside down through his death, burial, and resurrection. We live in the midst of this upside-down world, this mixed-up, messed-up kingdom that we look at. 
But we ask this question, how do we get here? How do we get into this moment where the world has been turned on its head and the gospel truths of Jesus are still relevant today? How did we get to this moment where Jesus is still on the throne in the midst of a hostile culture? How did we get to this moment where we are gathered as a church, as the people of God in the midst of this world, serving him, expanding this upside down kingdom? Well, how did we get here? We weren't born into this kingdom. We were brought into this kingdom by the work of God, by the work of the gospel. Now, if we have been brought into this kingdom, this leads us to an important question, which is, how did we get into this kingdom? How were we brought into this kingdom? It further requires the question, how do we lead others into this kingdom? If indeed this is our cause to be ambassadors to this upside down kingdom, how do we bring people into this kingdom? Well, I believe as we look here at Chapter 17 in the book of Acts, we see Paul demonstrating very clearly how we lead people into this upside down kingdom. How do we lead people into a faith that changes everything about their lives? Lead them into a faith that changes who they are and what they do. See, today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 17 where Paul addresses these questions. Now, it is a longer passage, so typically we will read the passage up front, but to save your legs... I'm going to read them in stages with you. But if you would, we're going to jump right into our first point. If you're taking notes, I hope you are. Our first point is that we proclaim the gospel. This is how we begin that journey of leading people into the kingdom of God. Look with me at verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphilius and Amphania, they came to Thessalonica where there is a synagogue of the Jews. So right here, we pick up our passage with Paul and Silas. They are coming upon Thessalonica. They're entering into the city. And if you remember from just last week, they've left the city of Philippi. They've left in the middle of conflict, of difficulty. They've been let go by magistrates, and they move on on their missionary journey. They come to Thessalonica. It's about 100 miles or so away from Philippi, a good distance, several days' travel. They've come here and they're going to continue in Paul's mission. He's been called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Specifically, he's been led by the Lord to the area in Macedonia that they're doing ministry in. So they've come to continue this. And they start by working through Paul's traditional method of mission. That is, they start with the synagogue, with these people who have heard of who God is. And they're going to hear the story of what God has done through Jesus. Look with me at verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Well, right here we see that Paul begins to speak to the gathered crowd in the synagogue. He gets a very in-depth view of how he works through the gospel and how he's proclaiming it to those who have gathered. I want to focus in on what's said here because I don't believe Luke is giving us these words by accident. He's leading us into this journey. He's showing us precisely how we're to work and move in this idea of proclaiming the good news of the gospel. You see, first he says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So we have to understand what is meant by this. Well, The Greek word for reasoned, this is what you pay me for to learn learn Greek and tell you what's going on. 
The Greek word for reasoned, this is actually the root word for our word dialogue. It's the root word for our word dialogue. Now, what does that mean? Well, dialogue means that there's an exchange of ideas, right? A conversation between two people. This means that there's interaction, there's questions, there's answers. There's a back and forth conversation, give and take an interaction. This leads us to something we want to understand as we're thinking about how do we proclaim the gospel? How do we share the good news of what Jesus has done? You see, sharing the gospel with others is not just us giving them what we believe and then walking away. As we're sharing the gospel, it's rooted in an interaction with someone. It's rooted in an interaction with a human being who's created in the image of God, who has value and meaning. That's what dialogue means, that we go back and forth talking about things. They share their heart. We share ours. They share what they believe. We share what we believe. We recognize we're coming from the side of truth because Jesus is the King of Kings. We know what we're saying is true, but we still dialogue so we may get to the root of this, which is that Jesus is Lord. This means that when we share the gospel, we communicate with people, that we were to actually speak and listen to them. You know, my son is a creative young man. If you haven't seen the books that he has written, and yes, he has written books, they're small and everything. He's got these whole worlds that he's created, things that he's done, and he tells us about them all the time. Perry does not care if I remember anything from his stories. In fact, he doesn't remember if he's shared his stories with me. You know what he does remember? He remembers that I listen every time. That I want to hear what he has to say. That I want to talk with him about it and ask questions and help him. This isn't just a thing in parenting. This is simply valuing who he is and who he, God has created him to be. This is what excites my son's heart, is being creative and thinking and brainstorming and just talking about things. Our rides from church are just filled with conversations and questions and interactions. And he loves those times. I'm not saying this so you say I'm a great parent because I'm probably not. But what I do recognize is that we are seeing that display that I am shepherding and caring for his heart. And if we're going to interact with people and share the good news of the gospel with people, that begins with us interacting with their hearts, listening to them, asking questions, paying attention. doesn't mean we have to remember everything. It doesn't mean we know everything. But it does mean we show them value and dignity because they have things to say, because they are created in the image of God, and therefore they are valuable. Now, Paul doesn't stop there. He's not just simply dialoguing. He's then moving into explaining and proving the scriptures before them. So this word explaining here in the Greek, it actually means opening. He's opening the word of God before them. He's showing them what it truly means. He's showing them this is what Jesus was talking about. This is what the prophets were saying. Here's how the entire Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. See, this is the same word that Luke uses earlier in his writings in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. You see, it says that there their eyes were opened as they're talking to Jesus and they clearly recognized him. It's the same concept that what Paul is doing here is showing them in clear language, very simply saying, here's what the Bible means. Here's what the text means. He's simply pointing to the story of Jesus. 
He's pointing to the story of Jesus, trusting that the Spirit of God do the real work of conviction in this moment. He's giving them evidence of Christ. This word proving, it means to place beside or to set before. He's pointing back to this work of the Old Testament. And he's saying here in the Old Testament, it's promised there's going to be a Messiah who's going to come. It's promised Messiah who's going to come and suffer for his people. It's promised that this Messiah will suffer, he will die, he will resurrect from the grave, and he will rule on high over his people. And wouldn't you know it, that's the story of what Jesus has done. Paul's also sharing with them the work of what Jesus has done in his own life, right? We call this his testimony. This is him sharing the work of Christ in his life. Think about the story that Paul can share of just simply expressing the change that has occurred in his life. Paul was once an enemy of the church, condemning them, murdering them, leading people in opposition. And then he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, gets knocked off his horse, struck blind. And what is he doing now? Well, he now sees and he follows the living God. He now worships Jesus Christ. He has now spent the last decades of his life telling people of the glory of God. They may not agree why Paul has changed, but they have to argue that there is indeed a change, isn't there? This is a part of what we say proving the work of the Scriptures. Paul is simply saying the Old Testament points to this who is named Jesus. My life points to this Messiah who is named Jesus. Won't you believe in this good news? Paul's making it very clear that the scriptures have promised all things. They've said Jesus would live, that he would suffer, he would die, and he would be resurrected again to free his people from bondage. This is a compelling truth. It's lived for centuries. Its power is still evident today. It still works and changes hearts and minds even today. As we hit verse 4, we see that this is changing hearts and minds even now in this passage. Verse 4 reads, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. We see that some have been persuaded Trust in these words. The gospel is bringing people into this upside down kingdom. But as we've seen through this passage, this leads into some conflict. In the next few verses, we encounter evil striving to counter the work of God. It's kind of a theme we see through the second missionary journey. Look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So as we've seen through this section of Scripture, the gospel is changing lives, and Satan and his forces must begin to work to oppose it. We see right here that some of the Jews that are in this city begin to get jealous of Paul and Silas. 
We're not really sure of their precise issue, but they begin to work against Paul and against the believers. They gather this mob and they go over to the house of Jason, whom Paul and Silas are staying with. And they can't find Paul and Silas there, so they do the next best thing. They drag Jason and some of these other believers before the rulers. They use this beautiful refrain, these men who have turned the world upside down to offer condemnation against them. They're accusing Paul and the brothers of work as they've spoken about King Jesus. They're telling the people they're out to incite rebellion and uprising. After all, they're serving this other king whose name's not Caesar. The rulers and make a bond payment. Essentially a guarantee that if there are further issues in the city, Jason's going to lose his money over this. Now this section is important for us because as we're picking up this passage, we're seeing a pattern happen within the stories that we're seeing in Paul's missionary journey. You see, every time the gospel begins to advance, Satan is quickly working to put it down. We've seen it in the preceding chapters. We're seeing it now. Satan is opposed. is opposed to the message of the gospel going forth to change lives. Satan absolutely is opposed to the work of God in this world. We have to recognize this reality. That as we seek to proclaim the gospel faithfully, we will encounter opposition. It is a promise. Doing what God has commanded us to do, we make an enemy of ourselves to Satan and his forces. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about bizarre supernatural works, right? Nothing exceedingly crazy in that sense. But we are talking about ordinary opposition against the work of God. Just as we see here with Paul and Silas, several times they've had what we would characterize as ordinary opposition. Things that you could write off, right? Well, we get arrested. It's a crazy thing, right? But it happens once in a blue moon. Oh, we were beaten. Well, that happens sometimes. Oh, now we run into opposition yet again. Now I'm sensing a pattern, a theme, where we go and proclaim the gospel. Trouble comes soon afterwards. Yet, opposition is an encouragement to the work of God, is an encouragement to Paul and his team. No, we don't welcome difficulty and conflict, right? No one willingly wants to seek out ill in our lives. No one wants to seek out the stress and difficulty. But we recognize that if we're encountering opposition, this means that God is at work in some way, shape, or form through us. You see, Satan's forces, as we study the scriptures, they only seem to pop up, particularly in the New Testament, where? In places where God is at work. Through the New Testament, where do we see Satan and his forces mentioned? It is where God is at work doing mighty things. I'm going to share something with you that uh, you might think I'm a little crazy about saying, but it is one of my prayers for Holmes Avenue that God would do such a mighty work in our city that Satan himself would come have to fight against it personally. I want you to hear this and know that this is something I pray for, for you and I regularly, that God would do such a mighty work in our city through Holmes Avenue that Satan himself would show up to try and wreck things. I don't want one of the little demon minions coming around. I want the big boss. 
The reason I say that is because if God has done something so powerful through his people in this city that Satan himself must come, what a mighty work is occurring. What a beautiful thing to say that the Lord himself is moving and working and his direct enemy Satan must come to fight against his work. I know it's an unusual prayer to pray for Satan to show up. But I want you to know that I pray for God to move so powerfully that his great enemy would show his face in this city. This is an encouragement for us to recognize that where we encounter opposition, it's because we are living God's will in our lives. But this is also intended to be a warning for us as well. Question I want to ask for you. If we're not facing opposition and difficulty from the work of Satan, are we really living for King Jesus? If we're not facing opposition and difficulty, are we really living for King Jesus? Platt has said that the that comfort itself, comfort, is the greatest enemy of American Christianity. If our lives are comfortable with no risk, are we really living for King Jesus? If our lives are comfortable and everything is easy and simple, are we really living for King Jesus? You want to know who has changed the world that we know it? Jesus. Was his life a life of comfort and ease? No. Yet Jesus turned the world upside down. As we look back through church history, going from the time of Jesus to now, who are the people we proclaim that have changed the face of the world through church history? It's those that have experienced hardship and difficulty in the midst of great works for Jesus. We don't talk about people who've lived lives of comfort and ease. We talk about people who have lived lives of difficulty and distress, yet still honored King Jesus in the way they live. So I ask you again, if we're not facing difficulty and opposition from the work of Satan, are we really living for King Jesus? I think the scriptures, I think church history would affirm that if our lives are easy and peaceful, then Satan is well pleased with the work we're doing. But if our lives have turmoil, distress, and difficulty brought on by the opposition of Satan and his forces, then perhaps God will look upon us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You see, the hope we have in the midst of this, that we can embrace difficulty and distress, hardship and pain in this life, is that we know that coming restoration. We rest in this day where Jesus will return to make all things right where we, no matter our physical ailments, no matter our earth position, we will not walk or crawl into heaven. We will run into heaven. We'll be restored and all things will be made new. All things will be made right. We'll look upon the gaze of the Father and say, we have arrived. That is the reward that we have. That is the rest we have in this moment. That we know that though we experience difficulty and distress following Jesus, It pales in comparison to the reward we'll receive we see them face to face. This 
is why we embrace opposition as a good thing. This is why we rejoice when we see Satan at work in our midst because we praise God that he is working and moving. Because if Satan is here working and moving, that means God is on the march as well. See, these are good things. And these lead us to rejoice in proclaiming the gospel. Yet, proclaiming the gospel is merely the first step in the leading people in this upside-down kingdom. See, the journey isn't over when we proclaim the good news. No, we must continue to see it work to change hearts and minds. That leads us to our second point, that the gospel changes hearts and minds. Look with me at verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So Paul and Silas have managed to escape yet again. They've been sent off by night to a town called Berea. It's about 45 to 50 miles away from Thessalonica. And here they continue the pattern they've established of going first to the synagogue and then out from there. Well, what happens when they enter the synagogue? Let's look at verses 11 and 12. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So as Paul and Silas enter into the synagogue, the group, this passage tells us a group of people more noble than those in Thessalonica. It's an unusual word to use here, but the word in the Greek, it has this connotation of meaning. They were more open. They were more tolerant. They were more generous in their dialogue. They were more willing to have a conversation with Paul and with Silas. I think that's evident from the way they receive Paul and Silas. They begin to hear the word. They begin to study it and wrestle with it. Consider if this might be true. They were very eager, but they were cautious in their exploration. These Bereans, they spend several days examining the scriptures on a daily basis. They're not just waiting weeks at a time. We gather back together. No, they're stopping life as we know it and saying, we need to consider what these men have said. They want to see if there's truth in this of who Jesus is. They want to know if the scriptures really do point to the death and resurrection of the Messiah. I would submit to you that this desire to know the truth is why he describes him as noble. He says that they are people that desire to learn, to grow. He finds their honesty and their passion to be refreshing and trustworthy. Well, what's the result of this? The result of this study is that many find Paul's words to be true. Many believe and they trust in the good news of Jesus. You see, all of this, all of this is the work of God through the gospel being proclaimed. The Bereans' hearts were already being quickened by the message Paul proclaimed. They're wondering if this could be true, if their sins could be cleansed by this king named Jesus, this Messiah that was promised from the Scripture. Scriptures to see if they could be true. And it's this free exchange of ideas that Paul tries to do every time he stops. There's a purpose behind that, this dialogue back and forth. You see, Paul is recognizing that by 
talking back and forth, by engaging and embracing, by wrestling with individual beliefs. It's forcing each party to determine what they believe. Not only must they determine what they believe, they must then ask the question, is this true? Now, Paul is playing with what gambling world, house money. He knows that he can win this argument. He knows that he can dialogue with them because he rests upon the fact that everything that he is saying is true. He knows it without a shadow of doubt that his message is true. And he knows that if they would listen to this, if they would consider it, they too will assent that it is true and it will change everything for them. We see Paul continually, moment after moment, risking every ounce of comfort he could have in order to find moments like this. How did Paul start his first missionary journey? He's in Antioch, comfortably living, leading the church. And they say, God's called you to go reach the Gentiles. Go forth and do this. Things go well. He comes back to Jerusalem in Acts 15. The Jerusalem council leads the church to assent to the reality that Gentiles are welcome to be a part of the body. He goes home to Antioch to tell them of this. And there he could have stayed. Yet what does he do? He goes back out again on another missionary journey. Why? Recognizes that the most important thing in his life are moments like this are moments when people are examining the truth of who God is and wondering, what has God done? It's like this that lead to life change, lead to people crossing from death to life. This is why Paul gets up in the morning, not for his own glory, not for his own sanctification, but so that he can see people cross from death to life. As we've seen throughout the book of Acts, This miraculous work of God leads to more opposition from Satan and his forces. They labor to counter him. And we see that in the following verses. Look with me at verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately put Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. Opposition has come up yet again from those pesky men in Thessalonica. Heard that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul in Berea oppose him and the will of God in Berea with the same basic strategy. If you haven't seen it before, it should be very clear now. These men were compelled to move to Berea. Why? Because they learned the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul. See, they willingly or unwillingly, they have aligned themselves directly with Satan. And they are now in opposition with the work of God in this area. Now they arrive, and as they're making a mess of things, the the church in Berea, they move to protect Paul. They immediately put Paul on a boat, and they get him out of there. He sails away in the middle of the night. They move so fast that it seems like they forgot that he came with some friends, Silas, Luke, Timothy. They leave him behind, and they get Paul out of there. 
We end our time with Paul here is that he's heading to Athens. It's an intellectual and philosophical capital in this area. Pastor Brian will begin looking at that next week, but it's, it's an interesting area. Just a, one of the most unique areas that Paul does ministry in. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, throughout this passage, we've seen a truth be displayed. If we're faithful to the mission that God has called us to, then we are going to encounter opposition from Satan and his forces. If we are not being faithful to the mission, if we are not being faithful to follow the mission of God, then we will live in comfort because the enemy has nothing to fear from you or I. My question for you is this. Are you comfortable in distress? If you're comfortable, then perhaps it's because you've chosen a life of least resistance. If I don't follow God, if I don't do what he's called me to do, then things are easy. Why? Because Satan and his forces have nothing to fear from me. Perhaps you find yourself in distress and difficulty. There seems to be opposition as you strive to follow Jesus. Well, then perhaps that would mean that you are indeed being faithful to accomplish the mission of God. You're being faithful to follow him and to move and to work in this world. Question for you, my dear brothers and sisters, is this. Are you comfortable or are you in opposition to something? One of these leads to worship and praise, to celebration in this life and the next. The other one leads to a peaceful life and difficulty and distress in the next life. My friends, what I would encourage you to consider is that if we have that future restoration coming, where one day all things will be made right, that these things of this earth, this distress, this difficulty, all we've experienced will be meaningless before as we're standing before a Savior, then how could we not live in opposition to Satan and his forces, knowing the reward that is promised to us? My encouragement is this. If you're here and you find that you're living a life of comfort, repent. If you find that you're living a life of ease, repent. If you find that things are simple for you, repent. I would encourage you with this one last thought. One of my favorite writers is C.S. Lewis. And in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's writing of Aslan, this lion who's a Christ figure. And in this, little girls in one of the families is asking a family of beavers about this Aslan. And she says, is he safe? Because she's worried about him, right? He's a lion. It's a ferocious creature. And the beaver said, looks upon her and says, safe? He's a lion. Of course he's not safe. But he is good. Following Jesus is not the safe option. It's not the easy option. It's not the comfortable, comfortable option. But our Savior is good. And so it's the best option. Let me pray for you. Father, we are grateful for you. We're thankful for your goodness, for your grace for your faithfulness to your people.
Lord, it is our prayer, it is our hope that as we've considered this life of comfort or distress, Lord, that we recognize that choosing distress, choosing difficulty is a painful thing. It is hard to say that we're going to follow Jesus knowing we'll encounter difficulty and distress, but Lord, Jesus is good. That all these things we experience in this life, though they are hard, though they are difficult, though they are painful at times, we can rest in this truth that you are good, Lord, and that our reward is yet to come with you. So Father, my prayer is that we would live lives living and risking all for the name of King Jesus. Giving of ourselves generously, willingly, so that the Lord might receive all glory and honor that is due to him. Father, if there's anyone here who is comfortable, who is safe, who's playing it easy, my hope and my prayer is that they would be convicted by the work of Christ. They would repent of their sins. They would trust in you, Lord. And they would live their life knowing that if they give of themselves now, they receive all in eternity. What a beautiful truth to know, Lord, that there's coming this day of restoration where we don't crawl into the kingdom. We don't limp into the kingdom. We run into the presence of God. What a beautiful truth to consider and to reflect upon that our reward is yet to come. It's a beautiful thing to anchor us in this time. Give us hope, give us encouragement, but most importantly, Lord, give us Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.